Thank you for listening. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit the Hay Player at hayfestival.org. Good morning and welcome to Hay and to this morning's event which is in association with the University of Cambridge. Jaideep Prabhu is the Nehru uh, Professor of Business and Enterprise at the Judge Business School at the University of Cambridge. Uh, he's here today to talk about the frugal innovation, how to do better with less. He will be signing copies in the book tent afterwards. Please do give Jaideep a warm hey welcome. Good morning, everyone. It's really a great pleasure to be here. Um, I've spent my career studying innovation. And in the first part of my career, I studied innovation in large Western corporations because the understanding was that's where innovation happens. And then in about 2008 or so, I turned my attention to emerging markets like India, where I'd grown up. And when I went to India, I realized two things. One is there's a lot of innovation happening in places like that. But also, the approach to innovation there is quite different from the Western corporate approach. Indeed, Indian innovators seemed different in three ways. First, their approach was very frugal. They were very good at doing more with less and uh, overcoming some of the resource constraints that they faced in their environment. Second, the mindset that they adopted was very flexible. There was a lot of improvisation and lateral thinking. And finally, many of their solutions seemed designed to bring people who are outside the formal economy into the formal economy. Let me give you some examples of what I'm talking about. So by way of contrast, uh, this is what we might regard as an innovation in an affluent society. Uh, this is a high-end fridge that will talk to you and you can talk back to via this tablet PC. And for that pleasure, you pay about $3,000. Now, this is a bit of a caricature, but it helps me make my point. Uh, large companies often have very structured approaches to R&D and innovation. They have big budgets and big teams. They work on pushing the technology frontier, sometimes for the sake of pushing the technology frontier. And then when they have some new technology, they put it into their products to differentiate them. And because this is expensive and because people can pay, they charge the customer for it. Now, in India, you may see something like this, but you're equally likely to see something like this. So that's $3,000. This is about $30. It's a clay fridge. It uses the cooling properties of water stored in this reservoir, not only to keep that water cool, but also to keep fruit and vegetables fresh for up to five days. The water evaporates through the walls of clay, and it drops the temperature by about eight degrees in a hot climate. Now, this is frugal. It uses clay and water. I'll tell you a bit about the entrepreneur in a moment. He used a lot of lateral thinking and improvisation to come up with this. And his intention was to be inclusive. He comes from a village. He wanted to make a fridge for people like himself who would like to have a fridge but may not be able to afford one. And even if they were able to afford one, may not have access to electricity. Now, here's another example. Uh, this is an incubator. This is a beautiful machine. It has all the bells and whistles produced by a company like GE but it's about $25,000. And at that price, it's beyond the reach of most people living, particularly in rural areas in countries like India, where the clinics will not be able to afford these machines. Even if somebody gives machines like this to them, uh, they may not have technicians to maintain them, and they may not have regular access to electricity. Now, in a situation like that, 
Something like this is very powerful. Now, uh, that's about $25,000. This is less than $100. It's not an incubator. It doesn't have an oxygen tent. It's a baby warmer. But it's designed to uh, address a problem that this is trying to address. A large part of that problem that that's solving uh, is solved by this, namely the problem of infant mortality, where if infants are born one or two weeks prematurely, they cannot maintain their body temperature. In many cases, they may die or be very badly affected for the rest of their lives, and this will save them. Interestingly, this was not developed by a large corporation. This was developed by four students at Stanford who took a course called Design for Extreme Affordability, where the entire objective of the course was to come up with a working prototype that was 100th the cost of the existing solution. The students could take any problem. These students took the problem of infant mortality, and they came up with this uh, device. They went on, after they graduated, to try and commercialize this. They tested it first with mothers and midwives in rural Nepal and then in rural South India. They got venture capital backing from people at Stanford. They tested it in the medical hospital. And then when they were ready to commercialize it, they hit a wall. They didn't have a sales force that could help them take this to rural clinics or even uh, government, uh, to the government public health system. So interestingly, they partnered with GE Healthcare, the company that makes these machines, and they signed a non-exclusive licensing agreement, which uh, enabled GE Salesforce to then commercialize this product. Now, I've spoken to literally scores of such innovators in places like India. And in India, when I ask them to describe this frugal, flexible, and inclusive approach, they often used this Hindi word, jugaad. So my co-authors and I ended up writing a book about this phenomenon. We called it Jugaad Innovation. And we defined this as the art of overcoming harsh constraints by improvising an effective solution, not a perfect solution, but a good enough solution, importantly, one that made the best use of the limited resources in their environment. And after we published this book in 2012, we found uh, people from other parts of the world wrote to us to say that they had equivalents in their country. For instance, the Brazilians told us that they had two words that sort of captured the same idea. And you see this not only in other emerging markets, but you also see equivalents in the West, and I'll come back to that later. So what we did in the book was to look at several examples and try and extract some principles we thought might be guiding these innovators. And here are the six principles we identified. First, they're very good at identifying opportunities in adverse circumstances. Necessity really is the mother of invention for them. Um, and it's the adversity that actually spurs their creativity. Their solutions uh, do more with less. They take resources that are available to them and use those resources as substitutes for resources they don't have. There's a lot of lateral thinking and improvisation. The idea is that if you cannot climb the mountain, try and find a way around it. Um, the solutions are simple. This helps them not only to economize, but also to ensure that people can very easily adopt and use the solutions. Often the solutions are designed for marginal users, marginal consumers, but they also include those marginal communities in the solution as part of the solution. And finally, these innovators are very passionate about what they're doing, and they have to be because what they're doing is quite difficult. It requires persistence over a long period of time. Now let's stop, step back and ask why we need this approach in, say, a country like India. Now, despite the growth of the last 20 or 30 years in India, 
upwards of about 40% of Indians still remain outside the formal economy. They don't have access to good banking, they don't have access to clean energy, or to good healthcare and education. Uh, this slide helps me make my point. If you look at the Indian demography, you see, yes, there are quite large numbers of people in the, who are very rich or in the consuming class. These are people who are typically in the big cities, uh, they're educated, they have uh, jobs in, in good uh, places, they have bank accounts and so on, and their preferences are very similar to their counterparts in other uh, developed countries. Um, now, typically, these uh, people are the target of large companies, whether multinationals or domestic companies, because they're easy to reach and they have disposable income. Now, that's what we call a, a, a red ocean because there's a lot of competition. So there's a lot of blood in the water there because everyone is targeting these consumers. But if you look below them, you see even larger numbers, uh, people who are aspirational, uh, but who are typically on the borders of the formal economy. These are people who may live in urban slums. They may be in smaller towns or in the countryside. And they have some disposable income, uh, but their incomes are generally quite low but they're aspirational. They aspire to the lifestyles of people who are in the upper segments, if not for themselves, then for their children. Now, these are, this is a blue ocean. There's relatively less competition because typically nobody really targets them with their market solutions. Uh, however, they're a very large untapped market opportunity. But to reach them, you cannot take products designed for those segments, just change them a bit and reduce the price. You have to start from scratch and design highly affordable solutions specifically for their conditions. Now, if you did that, though, if you targeted people who are in the sort of middle to lower end of the spectrum, you'll see tremendous growth because as people get richer, they move up uh, this demographic uh, pyramid. Now, India is, in a sense, a microcosm for large parts of the world. Uh, the World Bank uh, issued a report in 2007 called the Next Four Billion, which was uh, named after the four billion people around the world, most of them in the informal economy, who earn uh, less than $9 a day adjusted for purchasing power parity. This is more than half the world's population in the informal economy, many of whom who face unmet needs in basic areas like financial services, healthcare, and so on. And the World Bank report argued that this was a very large untapped market opportunity, um, roughly $5 trillion worth in 2008. Um, I saw numbers more recently that suggest it's about $10 trillion, which is roughly the size of the Chinese economy. So potentially a large market opportunity if one innovates frugally. I would even go on to argue that it's not just the developing world that needs this approach, but so to the West. Particularly since the financial crisis, we see pressures on household budgets and government budgets in the West. And people like Thomas Piketty have argued that inequality may be endemic even to Western uh, developed economies. So I'd argue that even the West might learn how to do better with less. And if you look at large Western corporations that in the past spent a lot on R&D, we find that in Europe and US, they're spending more and more on innovation and getting less and less for it. So they too may be interested in doing more with less. Let me now talk a little bit about the people we covered in our book. Uh, this is Mansukh Bhai, the person behind the clay fridge. Uh, he comes from a village in the Indian state of Gujarat. Uh, he has a high school education. He comes from a family of potters. 
in 2001, there was a very serious earthquake in Gujarat, and people lost their household possessions, including the clay pots in which they traditionally store water. And one morning, he says, he opened the local newspaper, and he saw a picture of someone's clay pot that was broken. And the caption read, uh, poor man's fridge broken. And that actually gave him the idea to make a poor man's fridge, uh, which you see here. He designed this. Um, he set up a factory in his village. He trained local women to make this fridge. And then he went on to sell it, including on the internet. In many ways, he embodies these six principles I was talking about, uh, seeking and finding opportunity and adversity, uh, um, doing more with less, uh, keeping it simple. Uh, involving people who are at the margins, not only as users, but also as part of the solution. By training people in the village, they could earn an income. A uh, lot of lateral thinking, and also very passionate. You can uh, see him on the internet talking about various things he's done uh, with Clay. Uh, now, you see various types of innovators. Here's another one. This is Dr. Mohan. Uh, he's a diabetes specialist from the South Indian city of Chennai. Diabetes is a very serious problem uh, in Indian cities. But in cities, people can go to clinics like his. They can even afford to pay for treatment. So he has a thriving practice in the city. But he's, he's aware that in the villages outside the city, uh, villages like this, there are large numbers of people who uh, have diabetes but don't know what it is. And they don't know what, the, what to do about it, because they will not go to the city. It's too far away. It's too intimidating. It's costly, and so on. And equally, his doctors from the city are not going to go and live in the countryside. So he came up with this solution, a mobile van that you see here. He worked with the World Diabetes Foundation. They gave him this van and the equipment in the van. He worked with the Indian Space Research Organization. They gave him the satellite dish. This van goes from village to village. Uh, people like this lady from the village step into the van. She looks through the eyepiece. The image is broadcast via satellite instantaneously to the doctor sitting in the city who can see it on his computer screen and make an instant diagnosis that he then communicates via mobile phone to this person who's a local health volunteer. So Dr. Mohan has identified people like this from these village communities. He trains them for a few days in the city, and then they go back to perform this role. Uh, so you see lots of these kinds of models. Uh, in healthcare, in particular, you see many. Here's another example. This is Dr. Devi Shetty. He's a cardiac surgeon. He was trained in London in Guy's Hospital and then went back to India. Um, and then he realized very quickly that lots of Indians cannot afford cardiac surgery. It's simply too expensive. So he spent a lot of his uh, life devoted to delivering quality healthcare, but highly affordably. Uh, and so this is what he does. He does in healthcare and in surgery what Henry Ford did with the assembly line. He looks at all the processes that go into uh, surgery. He identifies those that only the doctor can and should do. And everything else is done by others, paramedics, nurses, uh, the family, or even the patient. Um, and then he also applies economies of scale to this. So this is his 1,000-bed hospital in Bangalore, where they do something like uh, 30 major surg surgeries a day. And in this way, they have reduced the price the cost of surgery to something like $1,500, and they aim to bring it down even further. And they've taken this model to many other places uh, in India and elsewhere. A final example, this is Selco, uh, or Solar Electric Lighting Company, set up by Harish Hande, an entrepreneur in Bangalore in South India. Uh, his goal was to sell solar lighting solutions to people who are otherwise uh, don't have access to clean energy and otherwise use things like kerosene. 
Uh, and the first problem he faced, though, was affordability. A lot of the people he was trying to reach could not afford his solutions. He says that the best lesson in life he learned was from a fruit cart vendor who told him that 300 rupees a month was too much, but 10 rupees a day was not. And he realized that a lot of people he was trying to reach were like that fruit cart vendor, earning and spending on a daily basis because they were in, in the informal economy. They didn't have bank accounts and they didn't have liquidity. Uh, the fruit cart vendor might wake up in the morning, take a loan from a money lender, uh, then buy fruit and vegetables with it, which she would sell during the day. In the evening, with the money she'd made, she'd repay the money lender. She'd buy food for her family. And then if she had money left over, say 10 rupees, she might buy kerosene for lighting. So he said, how can I offer solar lighting solutions to someone like that at 10 rupees a pop? So here's his solution. He identifies people like this from the community. And this is a pattern. They use people from the community as part of the solution. He trains them uh, to manage and maintain the batteries, the panels, and the lights. Now, people like that will also be unbanked, so they cannot take bank loans. He worked with a bank to give people like that loans that he guarantees. With the loan, this person sets up shop, like you see here, buys the equipment, the batteries, the panels, and the lights, charges the batteries during the day, and in the evening rents them to people like the fruit cart vendor for 10 rupees a pop. So she's better off. She doesn't have to change her behavior. She gets a much better quality of light. It lasts longer. It doesn't create fires and so on. If she has a business at home, she can be more productive. Her kids can read and so on. So she's better off. But so too is he, because after six months, he has a credit history. He can withdraw his guarantee. He's in the banking system in the formal economy as an entrepreneur. So you see lots of these examples of entrepreneurs, or social entrepreneurs, as you might call them, they have ingenious solutions in the community, but often they struggle to scale their solutions. And this is where large companies uh, can enter uh, this, this uh, arena. And in fact, there are some examples of large domestic companies, such as Tata's, entering the space. So this is Ratan Tata, the then CEO of Tata Motors. And he had this idea of a people's car. So he would drive to work or be driven to work every morning in Bombay. And he would look out of the window, and he would see scores of people on two wheelers, often two adults and two or more kids balanced very precariously on these two wheelers. And he said, what if we could make a car for people like that? And he said this at a press conference. And a reporter asked him, you know, so how much would this car have to cost? And he said, just pulled a number out of his head, 100,000 rupees, about $2,000. And so then a small team at Tata's uh, got to work on this, working backwards from that price. And they approached this again from scratch. They rethought what it would take to make a car. And they came up uh, with this people's car. And Tata's have gone on to do other things, such as this uh, $10 water filter that uses some rice husk nanotechnology in the filter. You also see multinationals entering the space. Uh, so for instance, uh, GE has its largest R&D center outside the US in Bangalore in South India. And there they have begun to develop a whole suite of medical devices, initially for the Indian rural market, but then subsequently for elsewhere. So for instance, they realized that the ECG machines that they were selling in India were typically affordable only by large city hospitals, and there were big uh, devices like that. But typically, doctors, uh, were going, if they were going to serve the rural market, would have to go on a day trip from the city to the, to the rural clinic. So the ECG machine couldn't be like that. It would have to be like that. It would have to fit in a doctor's bag. It would be, have to be highly affordable, but also run on batteries and be very robust. So they realized it would have to look something like this. 
Uh, but they went one step further. They said, instead of doing it the way we would typically do it, in-house, start from scratch, uh, own all the intellectual property, reinvent the wheel, let's do what our Indian and Chinese competitors do and work backwards from what it needs to look like and look for off-the-shelf uh, solutions. So for instance, uh, we need a printer. What about bus ticket printers? We can use that component. We can even use the paper that they use. It's cheaper. Uh, we need keypads. Well, telephones have keypads. We can use those uh, uh, components. And in this way, they took off-the-shelf components. They cut and paste them, so to speak, applied a quality control standard, and they had a better product, faster, and cheaper. Uh, this did very well in India. They launched a similar product in China. And now these are selling in the West because they have FDA approval. Siemens also has a large R&D center in India, and they too have been developing similar affordable devices. So here in the West, for, uh, when we want to look at the status of the fetal heart, we use quite expensive ultrasound machines that also require technicians. There they have developed these uh, radio microphone uh, machines, which are much cheaper and easier to use. And in fact, Siemens has gone on to develop a whole suite of products, not just in the medical sector, but also for uh, industrial uh, markets that they call smart products where SMART stands for simple, maintenance-free, affordable, reliable, and timely to market. Uh, features that they felt were specifically needed in emerging markets, but now uh, uh, products that they find a global market for. Nokia, in its pomp, uh, was a master at this. Um, in fact, this device was built specifically for people in urban slums in places like Dharavi in Mumbai or in Sao Paulo and so on. They noticed in the late 90s, they had people go and live with people in the slums. And they noticed that even though mobile phones were expensive, people in slums were buying them. But then they were a prized possession, so they would cover them in plastic to protect them from dust and grime. They would use the light in the phone to see their way in the dark at night. So they took these insights and came up with this robust phone, affordable phone, that also had these features, particularly this built-in flashlight. And this made it phenomenally popular. Uh, before the iPod, this was the world's best-selling consumer device. And now the world is awash in mobile phones. Um, I read recently that there are more mobile phones in the world than toothbrushes, uh, which is probably alarming if you're a dentist, but uh, very empowering if uh, you're trying to reach people who are in the informal economy. So in Kenya, for instance, Vodafone subsidiary introduced this product, M-Pesa, in 2007 which allows people like this lady with a basic Nokia-type phone, text-enabled phone, uh, from the village. She can use this phone to call her son who's working in Nairobi, not only to speak to him, but also to ask him to send money home, which he can do with that same type of phone by texting it to her. She receives it onto her phone, like a text message. She enters her PIN code, four-digit uh, code, and it then sits on her phone as eFloat. And she can go and cash it in the local corner shop at the M-Pesa agent. And so this is a killer application in a country where a lot of people are outside the banking system. And they need to send money home because there's a lot of internal migration. There are now something like 25 million people in Kenya alone. This has spread to many other countries. In Kenya alone, 25 million people who use this service, many of whom are still not quite in the banking system. Now, if you have so many people who have access to this ability to uh, send and pay money, um, you can now sell other things to them, such as these solar lighting solutions. So Harish Hande's problem in India of 300 rupees a month is too much, 10 rupees a day is not, is solved in Kenya because you can now set up this kit. You can install this panel in a hut in rural Kenya. 
and it comes with you know, radio, batteries, lights, and so forth. You set up this kit. Now, it's still too expensive for people to buy up front. They don't have that liquidity. They don't necessarily have bank accounts. They can't take loans. But they have M-Pesa. So that's set up in their home, and then they pay off the upfront cost on a weekly basis as if they were paying for electricity as a utility through micropayments. Uh, and they can do that flexibly. And if they don't make their regular payments, uh, MCOPA can cut off the supply until they do remotely. So it makes it easier for them to pursue uh, these um, people. Now, uh, that book which I talked about came out in 2012, and it was about emerging markets. Um, and it was about how Western companies going to those markets could learn from uh, their emerging market counterparts. But since that book came out, uh, I've been struck by the interest in frugal innovation in the West for the West. So I've spent some time now studying that with a co-author. And we've tried to understand why this is happening. Now, partly this is a consequence of particularly the financial crisis, but not only that, about two decades of uh, you know, uh, a flat uh, real incomes in the West, particularly in areas where people were employed in manufacturing because of globalization and technology. Um, Exemplified by this study by PricewaterhouseCoopers, where they surveyed uh, consumers in Western Europe and North America, and they found that there's been a systematic upward shift post-financial crisis in the number of people answering yes to these questions. I seek discounts. I accept living with less. And this is from a base of about 50% before the financial crisis. So something like 65% of Western consumers are saying they accept living with less. Now, it's not just that Western consumers are value conscious, they're also increasingly values conscious. So Nielsen finds that a lot of consumers now are willing to pay more for products and services that come from companies that are environmentally or socially positive, uh, and that particularly young people want to work for such companies. So we've been thinking about this, and we realize that there's something of a frugal innovation revolution uh, brewing in the West, driven to a great extent by a new type of consumer. These consumers, we call them prosumers, are not just passive recipients of products and services from companies. They're more actively involved in the socioeconomic process, and they're driving at least two major movements, the sharing economy and the maker movement. Now, the sharing economy you're probably all familiar with, where People like you and me can directly trade spare assets with each other on some kind of digital platform. Um, this is now a small part of the rental sector, but it's likely to grow uh, very quickly, and it'll grow exponentially over the next few years. How will it grow so quickly? Partly because the model is fundamentally frugal. It's essentially asset light. Uh, as exemplified by this quote by Brian Chesky of Airbnb, you know, you could argue that Marriott is a competitor of Airbnb, and Marriott, if it wants to add capacity, would actually physically have to build that capacity. And that's expensive, it takes time, and so forth. Airbnb, uh, Marriott may take a whole year to do that. Airbnb could add that capacity in a few weeks. Why? Because that capacity already exists. People simply have to click and contribute it to the platform. Uh, this model is also evident in this case of BlaBlaCar. This is a company um, that allows people, initially in Western Europe, it's now global, people who are traveling, commuting between, say, Brussels and Antwerp. Um, and if you're doing that journey and you have three spaces free in your car, you can trade those with 
others who want to make that journey on this platform. And that contributes to the cost of your journey. Again, this has grown exponentially in the last few years. BlaBlaCar now transports more people in Western Europe than Eurostar does. Now, the maker movement. This is where now small teams of people, sometimes even our students in places like Cambridge, can do things that only large companies or the government could do 10 or 15 years ago. Um, this is an example of four students from Northwestern University in Chicago. When they graduated, they, ca they called their organization Design for America. Two of them had a background in engineering. One had a background in design and another in business. And they said, well, if you want to solve big problems in the world, you don't necessarily have to go to Africa or Asia. There are plenty in the American backyard such as this problem of hospital-acquired infections that kills something like 100,000 people every year. So they said, what can we do about this, four of us? Well, they went to that local hospital in Chicago, they talked to doctors and nurses, and they realized very quickly that they have every intention of being hygienic, but there are many moments in the day when they cannot go to a wall unit to dispense the gel. So they went back to their studio, small room, a fraction of the size of this room, where they have some computing equipment, software, and a 3D printer. And they brainstormed. They asked themselves, what would a kid do? Well, a kid would probably just run his hands on his trousers. So what if we took that wall unit and have it clip onto the doctors and nurses' scrubs so they can actually dispense the gel on the fly? That was their insight. They then came up with this device. They prototyped it in their studio. This is SwipeSense, so that's the device that clips on. Um, and, and then they said, well, how do we commercialize this? Um, they needed money, so they crowdfunded the money they needed. Um, they didn't have a factory to make this. They outsourced the manufacturing. They didn't have a big advertising budget, so they used social media. One of them did a TED talk that went uh, viral. And finally, they didn't have a sales force, but they just listed it on Amazon. So all the things that you would need to not only come up with the idea, but also then commercialize it are now potentially available uh, to, to many of us. I'm particularly proud of this example because this is Eben Upton, a student of ours at Cambridge. Um, uh, Eben was in the computer science department responsible for student admissions. And he and his colleagues had noticed that fewer and fewer young people were applying to study computer science, not only in Cambridge, but around the UK. And even the ones who did apply had never opened a computer and tinkered with it, and many of them had never coded. So they said, what can we do about this? What if we come up with a computer that's so basic people will have to tinker with it, they'll have to code for it, and it'll be so cheap that even if they broke it, it wouldn't be a big deal. And that's the computer they came up with, the Raspberry Pi. Uh, it was about $30 when it first came out. They now have a $5 equivalent. Um, and they thought they'd sell a few thousand units. They've now sold 17 million, not only to kids, but often to the parents of the kids, particularly the dads, who use these frugal devices to make other frugal devices. So there's someone near Cambridge who sends these Raspberry Pis up in a hot air balloon, along with webcams and sensors. And uh, with that, he does do-it-yourself weather reporting. So here are some of the possibilities um, now. It's another student of mine. He took the Raspberry Pi. He gave it a cladding and a brand called CoLearner. And he loaded it with uh, something called the Khan Academy. The Khan Academy is the entire US school curriculum available in video form on YouTube for free. Now, his point was that you need an internet connection to be able to do that, and you need some kind of a computer. And many kids around the world don't have that, but they often have access to a TV. So what if we load this with that material? They can then connect it to a TV and uh, have the same experience. 
We carry around these very sophisticated computers in our pockets, which are also networked. And this company, a startup from UC Berkeley called, uh, called Cellscope, has produced a whole range of medical devices that click into the audio jack of the phone to leverage its uh, connectivity and computing power. This is an otoscope that a mother can use to take high-resolution pictures of the inner ear of her daughter and send them to a consultant somewhere else. And this device is a fraction of the cost of the standalone medical device. They've gone on to do other things like dermoscopes and so on. Now, this is interesting because it's frugal, but it also engages uh, the patient in, in the issue. And it can do telemedicine. This is a 3D printer, and this is about $200. At that price, it's within striking distance of many households in the West. But even if you cannot afford a 3D printer of your own, you can go to spaces. Um, they may be called tech shops or fab labs or make spaces. There's one right in the heart of Cambridge. Uh, in the tech shop, for a monthly fee, you get access to a space with all these tools. You have traditional tools, lathes and so on, but you also have digital tools like laser cutters, 3D printers, uh, circuit board printers, and so on. Most importantly, you get access to a community of like-minded makers and tinkerers, and you can bounce your ideas off them. Um, these, the students I mentioned at Stanford who had to come up with this baby warmer for their course, um, they had an idea, but they had to actually come up with a working prototype. They went to the tech shop in Palo Alto, and they were tinkering. And they had this idea of a blanket that the mother could use to swaddle the baby. But that's not enough. You need something that will keep temperature fixed for a period of time. And they had no idea how to do that. At the tech shop, they happened to meet someone who turned out was a former NASA scientist, um, <laughs> as it often happens in California. Um, and he told them about phase change materials, these waxy substances that you can heat and then they keep temperature fixed. And so that's a key part of, of this device, this uh, pad here, which can be heated either through electricity or through water. So uh, the Embrace people, that's Jane Chen, part of the team, uh, with an admirer who used to live in the White House. Um, and when, when he lived in the White House, he actually hosted a maker fair. These are fairs that you have now around the world celebrating this maker movement. And he hosted it for an interesting reason, I think. Uh, you can see that here in his quote. Today's do-it-yourself is tomorrow's made in America. Perhaps the idea was many of these communities, that um, manufacturing communities that had been hollowed out by globalization and so on, this might be a way to revitalize them, but in a different way, doing more high-value-add manufacturing, doing more creative, uh, innovative manufacturing. And in fact, maker fairs are now a phenomenon, much like book festivals around the world. Cities compete with each other to host these. Um, I went to one in Rome a couple of years ago. Very big event over three days in a big space like this. Thousands of people coming there, with, uh, often with their families, with their kids, to either see what others had done or to demonstrate their own uh, uh, things that they had come up with. And there was a group of people from the European Institute of Design, which is a school in Milan, and their uh, display was all about smart lighting solutions. And all their solutions used the uh, Italian equivalent of the Raspberry Pi, something called the Arduino. And there was one in particular that struck me. There was a live plant in a, in a pot, and there were two sensors in the soil that were connected to lights via an Arduino. And it would read the moisture in the soil, and when it was dry, the green light would go off, so you knew it was time to water the plant. 
I thought, you know, this is a cute application. I couldn't think of what else you could do with it until I came across G-Thrive. So this is an entrepreneur in California. California has been suffering a drought for five years, and it's a big agricultural state. He's come up with this device, which is a stick that farmers can stick in various parts of their farm. There are sensors below the soil that read nutrients and moisture, sensors above that read temperature and sunlight. They send that data wirelessly to your app on your smartphone, which then tells you and advises you on how much to water, where, and how much fertilizer to use. Uh, so you see lots of these kinds of solutions now. This is we're in the space of Internet of Things, cheap sensors, cheap computing, apps. Um, and the city of Barcelona, for instance, has leveraged this. Uh, they, have a, a, a whole, uh, they have a whole network of fab labs, which are like tech shops, uh, fabrication labs, uh, in Barcelona to do various things in different parts of the city. This is Tomas Diaz, who manages that network. And one of the things that they've come up with, inspired by local problems, designed and made locally, initially for local people, but potentially for others elsewhere around the world, is the Smart Citizen Kit. So the idea is that often people in cities suffer from pollution, but they don't know what they can do about it. In fact, they don't even have the data that they need. Uh, often the city will contract with a big company like Cisco or IBM. They'll buy this expensive equipment, lots of it, $40,000 for, for the kit. They'll put these uh, devices in various parts of the city, typically near the green parts so they can claim it's cleaner. Um, and they said, well, they thought about it, and they said, well, that's not a smart thing to do. What you should have is thousands of cheap sensors where people are involved. So they designed this device in the Fab Lab. It has all these sensors that read all these things. So you get this device. It's about 100 euros. Uh, you, you install it outside the window of your apartment. It reads all these things, air quality, temperature, and so on, sends that data to the other bit that fits into your uh, it's a USB, it fits into your computer, and sends the data to a central server that processes the data from a lot of people and then sends it back to you, processed, so you know, if you have asthma, why you had an attack on Thursday night, why it was particularly loud on Friday, and you can do something about it. Now, I just want to end with some reflections on, I've given you examples of this, a lot of this is led by entrepreneurs and so on, but what about large corporations? Uh, what can they do? Um, so we wrote a follow-up book. This is a book that came out in 2015, specifically about how companies, large companies in the West can do better with less. And what we did there was to look at what this might mean. So it's really about two things. You want to increase value while reducing the resources that you use. Uh, and the value could be to your customers, to your shareholders, or to society at large. And resources could be financial resources, natural resources, or time, which might be the most valuable of all. Again, we did the same thing. We looked at lots of examples and, and tried to extract some principles. Uh, here are the six. I'm not going to go through all of them, but I might just give you some examples of a few, particularly this one of creating sustainable solutions. So for most of the 20th century, we've, we've followed a model of a linear economy where companies have taken uh, resources from nature, used them to make things that they sell to us, which we use, and then we dump back in nature. Now, that's a linear economy, but increasingly people are talking about a circular economy, one where you reduce, reuse, and recycle materials. Now, this is a French company, Tarquette, that makes flooring solutions, a bit like the floor here. Um, and they've traditionally made these things and sold it to people, and then people just dump these uh, things when they uh, outlive their life. They have a very bold ambition of going completely circular, so reducing, reusing, and recycling all their material by 2020. 
And they realize that this isn't just a technical challenge, it's also a business challenge, where they have to go from selling things to people to s selling a service, where they may have a contract with you to, uh, to produce, provide flooring uh, for a period of time, and they retain control of the raw materials. So they might have a modular design, and they might know that, for instance, apart from the door to the seats, that part will wear out faster than bits in the corner, so they'll replace those bits uh, when they're needed, and so on. So there are these challenges to overcome. Unilever's a CEO who joined in 20, 2009, in 2010 launched their sustainable living plan, again with a similar bold objective of, in 10 years, doubling their revenues while halving their environmental impact. And this has now challenged many parts of the company to rethink how they do everything from how they source material from farmers, how farmers can be more sustainable in their practices, to the entire supply chain, how they can make that more efficient and reduce their footprint, to how they package their products. Uh, Levi's, for instance, has done something similar, trying to reduce the amount of water they use to make jeans, uh, uh, recycling their materials in their factories, spreading these practices. So companies are doing a lot of this, often because it makes sense to their bottom line. They can reduce waste, they can reduce cost, and improve quality. But they realize that a lot of the products that they sell to us then have a footprint because of the way we use them in the home. So for instance, we may take eight-minute showers when we could do with four-minute showers, perhaps. Or we might boil a whole kettle of water just to make a cup of tea, things like that. So Levi's thought about that as well. And so here's how they try to shape customer behavior. This is their CEO. He said, you know, don't need to wash your jeans as <laughs> that often. I haven't washed mine in a year. And, and this set off a whole set of studies. People started looking at jeans that hadn't been washed for two weeks or a month. And actually, they found that in certain environments, it didn't make much of a difference in terms of bacterial content. You could, in fact, do what he did and get away with it. Now, Companies are also rethinking how they do innovation and R&D. So again, there was a linear model for most of the 20th century. People in R&D would come up with the bright ideas. They would then get people in operations to turn them into products. The marketing people would then sell to customers. It was quite a linear and slow process and could be wasteful because you could come up with things that customers didn't actually want. Now, increasingly, we're moving to co-discovery, co-design, and co-marketing, where companies actually engage consumers in this process from the start. An example, again, being GE, who have a digital platform where people like you and me, if you're interested in kitchen appliances, for instance, we can be members of this platform. And GE engages us very early on in the design process through challenges. So here's an indoor grilling challenge. And you can send in your ideas for prize money. They'll incorporate these ideas into their new products. Uh, I mentioned tech shops earlier. This is an example of Ford, the motor company in Detroit, which partnered with Tech Shop to enable their R&D employees to go one afternoon a week to the local tech shop to tinker with people from the community. And initially, they found that this improved the morale of their employees. They were happier. But they also found that over time, it improved their productivity. They were generating more high-value added patents as a result of this process. A final example, Barclays, the big bank in London. Banks have realized that they've increasingly lost touch with their retail customers. They used to have that in the bank branch. But for various reasons, people don't go into bank branches. There aren't as many, and so on. 
But they have all this data on us, all our purchases, all our behavior, and they can compare it with others uh, they have data on. And much like Amazon does, they could use that data to make very sensible recommendations to us through an app. Uh, Amazon does it to recommend books. They could recommend uh, how we might uh, maybe buy fewer coffees at Starbucks to save, uh, to pay off our mortgage, that kind of thing. Now, they could develop these apps in-house. They have the resources, they have the people, they have the technology, but often they're constrained by their structures and their culture. They're very hierarchical, maybe siloed, they have a compliance uh, risk aversion culture. And they're surrounded in a place like London by scores of startups, fintech companies, that are doing this uh, all the time. So they say, well, instead of, why don't we just, instead of trying to beat them, let's join them. So they've set up a big space, an accelerator space in, uh, in London, and they've got a company called Techstars to manage the space for them. Techstars selects 10 fintech startups to be housed there for a 13-week for a period, during which the startups are trying to improve their solution, but they're mentored on a weekly basis by people from the main bank. And this helps the startups because they don't know much about banking and the mentors can help them get that insight. But it also helps the mentors because they don't know much about technology and suddenly they learn about the possibilities. And at the end of the 13 weeks, uh, these teams pitch to someone, a uh, team from Barclays and then Barclays can decide whether to incorporate that into the bank or, or to simply invest in it. So in conclusion, um, there are some challenges that this approach poses to large organizations. Um, large organizations for a long time have had resources, uh, but now they need to learn to do more with less. Uh, they've typically been very structured, now they have to be more agile. They've typically been secretive about innovation, now they have to include other groups. Um, and so three ways they might do this. They might give their employees more time and space to experiment, like Ford is doing with TechShop in Detroit. Or they may engage with more agile entrepreneurs, like Barclays is doing in London. Or they might get this emerging market resource-constrained mindset by going to those markets, like G and Siemens have done. Now, small organizations, startups, face the opposite problem. Because they don't have resources, they're often very frugal. Because they don't have structures, they're often agile. But then they face a problem when they have to scale, because they don't necessarily have the resources to do that. And this is where they could partner potentially fruitfully with large organizations, but then they need to learn how to do that. So let me say in conclusion that um, based on the work that I've done, I, I really believe that the world needs this kind of frugal, flexible, and inclusive innovation. I believe that Western firms can gain by engaging with their counterparts in emerging economies and vice versa. And I think that large and small can work together uh, to improve lives everywhere. Thank you. Thank you. I believe we have about 15 minutes, and um, I'd be very interested in your thoughts. Um, and there are microphones around. I think there's a gentleman there and there's a lady there. So if you could hand. Yeah. Uh, thank you. That was brilliant. Um, I wonder if uh, some of what we need to do is to actually change our attitude to things like folk wisdom. I mean, you know, thinking of your fridge analogy there. So in parts of Wales, I'm aware the fridge was a slate shelf, 
where you know milk and cheese uh, could be kept fresh for, and that was used for centuries. Um, and uh, you know, looking at indigenous folk wisdom and seeing what we can learn from them, and then reapplying it in a sense to our uh, our contemporary world. Absolutely, great question and great observation. Um, I, I completely agree with you. There's a lot there that we can uh, work with. Um, and in fact, there is a professor at the Indian Institute of Management in Ahmedabad in India who's been doing precisely that for 20 years, documenting these uh, folk innovations, particularly in the countryside. So he, he goes on walks like Gandhi used to. Uh, he goes with his disciples, so to speak. And then they go and meet people like the person who came up with the clay fridge, and they document this. And now there's a, there's a website that has a whole, it's a repository of these. And others who are interested, even large companies, in taking them to the next level, either by introducing some technology or branding it or marketing it, can, can participate. And I think that's absolutely right, that insight that people who are dealing with problems, often in resource-constrained environments, use their ingenuity to come up with solutions. And for most of human history, we've been in situations of extreme resource constraint, where the only resource we've had is our ingenuity, hence the clay fridges, which are universal, actually. And so we tap into that. And the M-Pesa example I gave you, Vodafone introducing that mobile payments thing, they actually got inspiration for that from, from people in, the, in an urban slum in, in Kibera, in, in Nairobi, where they observed that people were exchanging minutes as a form of currency. And so they said, how can we take that to the next level? And that's exactly what they did. They developed this platform that could enable people throughout Kenya to do it. And they used the corner shop in the village as the agent, so they could actually cash it. So I think, absolutely, how can we go back to tapping into these insights? But sometimes we need to take it to the next level. I think there's a question there. I'm really intrigued about the uh, story that you told about the hospital in India because yeah. the NHS is obviously going through a massive amount of change and one of the biggest challenges is professional identity and how our roles have been shaped to do certain things and I was wondering about the cultural conditions of that hospital where a lot of things that people would have felt mm -hmm. belonged to them and their profession were potentially being outsourced to another. Yeah, uh, again, great question. Um, and in fact, um, um, the NHS is a very interesting context in which one could look at some of these ideas. Um, I've spoken uh, at length over many occasions to people in different parts of the NHS. And in fact, that surgeon is quite a hero with people in the NHS. He's often invited to their events, and he speaks via Skype. And essentially, you're in a room like this, and you're waiting for him to show up. You just see a chair, and then suddenly he's there in his scrubs. He's quite dramatic. And then he tells them their story, and then he goes away. And then the people in the NHS are thinking, how can we do this ourselves? Uh, and that's not an easy thing because of some of the issues that you mentioned. People's identities, structures are in place. It's very hard to shift things when they've been done in a certain way, particularly in large organizations, complex organizations like the NHS. So it's not a simple task. But what I've been struck by is how people in the NHS are constantly, in a sense, subverting the system, despite the structures. They are incredibly innovative, they're incredibly creative, and they're often doing things frugally. Uh, the challenge that they often face is how can they scale them, again, within the organization. So you know, there's this notion of uh, intrapreneurs. So people who are entrepreneurs within these large organizations who are 
in a sense, working against the mainstream of the big siloed structured approaches. But often they, again, hit a wall at some point and they need to be nurtured. And I think that's the challenge for big organizations. What are they going to do with these people who don't fit into the neat sort of categories? And how can they encourage them without completely uh, creating chaos to, to help reinvent uh, the organization? And it'd be great to see that happen more in the NHS. So a, a, a lot is happening already, actually. Thank you. Very, very interesting talk. Um, I work for a, a, a charity, a larger charity, not remotely one of the largest, but a larger charity. And a lot of what you were saying here really hit a chord in terms of uh, charities who, who we are. It, it, I think charity in this country, and I don't know whether it's the same in other sort of more developed, are facing a sort of existential mm. crisis. And they, the new and lean and agile mm. charities who are coming onto the market mm. are absolutely everything mm. that, that you're advocating here. And then as they become successful and as they get drawn in, yet we don't have the resources to innovate, et cetera. Mm. Have you seen any yeah. uh, equivalent with your sort of big, slow organizations yeah. who are learning in small pockets to, be, yeah. to stargaze and innovate? So again, great observation. And in fact, there are lots of people in the charity sector, sector or NGOs who are masters of this, either because that's how they've grown, they had the, this, is in the, this is in their DNA, in their roots, or because they've had to do that. And increasingly, a bit like Barclays engaging with, in the private sector, in the corporate sector with, with startups, you see charities uh, engaging with social entrepreneurs. Uh, so uh, UNICEF, for instance, does this. They do this brilliantly. They, they, they engage with startups uh, that help them to do many of the things that they would need to do but cannot do. But I have to speak about a particular NGO uh, which I've encountered in my research, which I'm you know, much in awe of, which is a Bangladeshi NGO called BRAC. And I don't know how many people have heard of BRAC. Not that many. It's, it's one of the world's best kept secrets, I think, in some ways. It, it is the most remarkable organization. It, it is possibly the world's largest NGO. Um, but to call it an NGO is a bit of a misnomer, because it's like a parallel government in Bangladesh. It's as old as the country. It's about 40 years old. Um, it, uh, it does things that the government should do, like primary health, primary education, microfinance, uh, and social enterprise, and so on. It does those things at the scale of government. It does that across the country. Uh, so it is scaled, and it does this very efficiently by taking practices from, uh, you could say, from companies like very good financial management, uh, zero tolerance for fraud, very good HR practices, and they're constantly learning. Uh, and they're very accountable, particularly to their donors. And I think you know, it'd be worth, if, if you're really interested, looking carefully at how they did it, because I think there are, there are many lessons there. Um, and, and now they've become large and bureaucratic. They realize they need to be faster. So they, too, do this kind of engagement. Uh, they have a social innovation incubator, which is trying to bring ideas from outside in, and equally to share ideas within the large organization, because sometimes one part doesn't talk to the other. So I think that's a fascinating space, and there's a lot happening there. A question here. Oh, yeah, please. Um, thanks for a fascinating talk. Um, I wondered uh, if you could tell us a bit about sort of good practices for states and governments. Um, I mean, perhaps the BRAC example is yeah. kind of a pertinent point to bring this up in. Um, you know, should it be that uh, states do the sort of Barack Obama thing mm. of kind of facilitating through yeah. things like makers fairs yeah. um, and otherwise just step back? Or is there a more active role um, mm. for sort of big governmental organizations? Again, a fascinating uh, question. And um, 
there's so much that states could do. Um, now, I think both, in, in a sense. Uh, they've, they've got to be more engaged, but they've also, I think, got to be more trusting of uh, people outside government, uh, their own citizens, actually, and engage more with their citizens. So there are lots of examples I could give you, not only from emerging countries like India, where you have these interesting examples in, in, in healthcare, or Kenya, where you have interesting examples in financial services, but even in the West, like the Netherlands. I don't know if you've heard of this organization called Birdsorg. Anyone heard of Birdsorg? A couple of people have heard of Birdsorg. It means neighborhood care. Uh, and this was a nurse, a male nurse, who, uh, you know, the Netherlands used to have neighborhood uh, nursing. They had people from the community who did social care in the community. And then it became quite corporatized, quite managerialist, uh, through the state, actually. The state intervened in the 90s and said, you've got to become larger, we want bigger entities, you'll have economies of scale. But that actually just added more administration and, and more managerialism. It didn't improve the quality of care, and in fact, nurses became more estranged from their patients and vice versa, uh, and they were having to account for every 10 minutes of their work and so on, and they left. They left the profession. And one of those nurses was, Bert, uh, was uh, Jan um, uh, de Block, uh, Jos de Block, uh, and he then went back to these basic principles, and he set up Birdsog, which has, you know, uh, you have a, a group of 10 nurses for a community of about 5,000, and took it back to those principles. And now it's, it just spread. It's remarkable because uh, the nurses are more motivated. They develop relationships with their patients. And yet, it, uh, it's quite a frugal organization because the back office is tiny. They use the internet and so on. So I think there's many of these models uh, that are happening in the private sector on the third space that governments could partner with. Uh, I gave the example of Fab Labs. That was the mayor of Barcelona you know, pushing this idea. And I think a lot can happen, particularly at local government level in cities. I think you see this happening where mayors are pushing this kind of engagement with their citizens, with local companies. They can use challenges. Uh, they can use procurement to stimulate local business as opposed to big corporations that are often from elsewhere and who they typically do business with. So lots happening in that space. Hello. Uh, I, I'm, I'm just aware of time, so perhaps we can take a couple more questions. Yes? Please. Hello, thank you. That was really interesting. And uh, at the beginning of your talk, you mentioned some of the very expensive high-end tech produced by companies like Siemens and GE. And uh, you also mentioned how they're interested and involved in the frugal tech. Um, my question is, what, what would happen if that wave of frugal tech started washing back into yeah. our part of the world? Yeah. Do the Siemens and GEs have a position on that? Do they want to encourage it, actively discourage it? Where, where are they on that? Again, great question. And I think they have mixed feelings about it. Because on the one hand, their entire business model relies on these high-end products which have high margins. Their salespeople have commissions that are based on the value of what they sell. But equally, particularly in the emerging markets, they are being literally slaughtered by the local competition, particularly in China where local companies were developing medical devices at the fraction of the cost designed specifically for Chinese hospitals. And the only option for G and Siemens was either to slash their prices or to exit the market. But in the long run, they said, we have to join them. We have to beat them to join them, or you know, join or beat them. And so they have been doing things like uh, those examples. Now, those sell in China and India and the emerging world. But there are pressures to bring them to the West as well. But then there's a clash between their two business models. Um, 
Interestingly, though, they will find probably cases where they're complementary as opposed to substitutes. So that ECG machine is not necessarily being used in the big hospitals, but it's used uh, in curbside when there are curbside accidents uh, or when people are being taken to the hospital uh, to do Im immediate diagnostics. So at least initially, that's how they're dealing with it. Uh, and also, actually, sometimes it's the procurement that gets in the way because the standards typically in Western health systems are so high that you wouldn't be able to get in with those uh, sometimes entry-level products. So at the moment, they're protected by the business model, so to speak, or the, or the procurement model of, of the NHS and things like that. But that could change very quickly. Maybe one more question? I'm looking at time. Yeah. Who has the mic? I oh, he yeah, sorry. Right, sorry. Hello. Um, I work in Westminster in politics, and I thought it was interesting that you talked about entrepreneurs, about consumers. You never used the word capitalism, which is a word that's under attack a lot. Um, and I thought it's interesting to all the things you're doing are assuming that government won't get in the way. But Uber is under attack. Airbnb is under attack. If you talk about spending more in the NHS and doing less, people assume that you're sort of automatically talking about less cancer operations or whatever. How can you stop politicians stop doing this? So they're not going to do it, but how can you make sure they don't get in the way? So again, great question. But you know, the remarkable thing is that when you dig one level below, so at the level of politicians, especially national politicians, it's all very ideological and so on. But if you go a little lower, where people are actually dealing with problems, particularly people in the civil service, you see a lot of, and, or in the NHS, you see people on a day-to-day -day basis doing a lot of very constructive things. So one of the things I'm fascinated by is autonomous vehicles, connected and autonomous vehicles. And there's a lot happening in the UK. The UK is actually at the forefront of this because of smart regulation, and goes back to that question again. They have very early on engaged with the whole ecosystem of players that might create this new uh, world of the autonomous vehicle, with huge benefits potentially to people, but also potential downsides. So the state has a very important role, and regulators have a very important role. They have to ensure that they don't regulate too heavily and kill the innovation before it starts, or too lightly because that could endanger people's lives. So how do you do smart regulation? What are the issues? They engage with these, the whole ecosystem, the auto manufacturers, the software companies, the cities, uh, the insurers, and all these people. They have a code of practice that allows them to test these uh, cars. You can test these cars anywhere in the UK. This, the UK was uh, at the forefront of this. So in this process, they're learning about what are the issues so they can do smart regulation. But equally, they can stimulate all these players to now create a huge new market opportunity which will create jobs, it will, it will create growth, and also be aware of what are the pitfalls. How will they replace jobs that are lost, taxi drivers' jobs, and things like that. And if perhaps they had done that with Uber and people like that, we would be in a different place. If they had done that with uh, Facebook, we would be in a different place. But the UK has pioneered this model with autonomous vehicles. They're doing the same thing with AI, and they're doing the same thing uh, with uh, FinTech. Uh, the FCA has something called a regulatory sandbox where they experiment with people uh, doing things with blockchain and so forth. So actually, at the national level, you see it's very charged. But if you look below, there are a lot of people you know, addressing these practical problems in very uh, creative and positive ways. I think we're unfortunately out of time. I want to thank all of you for your participation, your great questions, and enjoy the festival.